Hi, I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and welcome to this special three-part podcast looking at the coming of age of the exchange-traded fund market in the UK. The UK ETF industry celebrates its 16th birthday this month. The first ETF was listed on the London Stock Exchange in April 2000, and since then, investing in these passive vehicles has boomed, with investors flocking to ETFs for a low-cost way to generate returns from a wide range of assets, sectors and countries. In the first quarter of the year, assets invested in ETFs globally broke through a record $3 trillion milestone for the second time, and assets in Europe and US broke new records too. But just how mature is the ETF market at 16? Is it over its acne-riddled teenage phase, or does it still have some growing up to do? And how should you be using ETFs in your own portfolio? With me to discuss those themes are Adam Laird, Passive Investment Manager at Hargreaves Lansdowne, Ben Seeger-Scott, Director of Investment Strategy at Tilney Best Invest, and Joe Parkin, Head of Wealth for iShares in the UK. In the first episode of this series, we'll be looking at the basics of investing in ETFs and the way they work. In the second episode, we're going to look at how to put together an ETF portfolio, and we'll talk through some of the best areas to invest in. And in our final episode, we'll look at some of the controversy, myths and market debates surrounding ETFs. So we're going to start off with the basics. Joe, what is an ETF? and What are the key differences between an ETF and a tracker fund? Put very simply, an ETF is a simple, transparent and easy to use vehicle that trades on a stock exchange, very similar to a stock, and it tracks the performance of an index. While ETFs and tracker funds are both designed to track an index, the, one of the advantages of an ETF is that it has continuous liquidity or you're able to trade it in today. Many investors choose ETFs over tracker funds because they offer that sort of flexibility. Typically, an ETF also uh, will offer more exposures than a tracker fund. Um, So for some of the more granular exposures in emerging markets or within the bond markets, ETFs will offer that exposure, Uh, whereas index funds tend to be uh, more about the core exposures. Okay, I mean, Adam, what what do you think? When would you use an ETF over a tracker fund and other times when you would just definitely use an active fund? So tracker funds are simple investments and they tend to give really straightforward exposures in, in core areas. Where ETFs play a part is when you need more niche exposures or perhaps whenever you need more flexibility in investing. Active funds have a lot more powers. Active fund managers can go into different sorts of areas and for different reasons. So they have the potential to outperform, although in reality, not all of them do. Importantly, many investors blend all different sorts of investments whenever making up a portfolio, and it's about finding the right product in the right area. Okay, and just another basic ETF thing in terms of performance. Ben, what are the key performance things people need to look at? Well, I think there's really two different areas of performance measurements you want to look at. The first one relates to risk and and return, and the second really on cost. And the first one, it may sound stupid, but the most important performance metric is how does the index perform? Because by and large, most uh, ETFs and and index tracking funds, they'll track the index pretty closely. So it's a case of really making sure you understand the index you're tracking. Obviously, things like the FTSE 100 are pretty simple, but once you get into more uh, complex areas, it, it can be a bit more challenging. And even some of what what people think are mainstream. It's things like, if I'm buying a European ETF, is that Europe X UK or Pan Europe? And things like Asia Pacific, a very common uh, mistake I hear both with certain professionals and with some retail investors. They say, oh, I want uh, an Asia Pacific tracker because they're interested in ASEAN and China. 
and don't realize that if you just buy most asia pacific trackers a lot of them track developed asia so you've got 60 percent australia uh, a little bit of hong kong and a, a little bit of singapore so it's very important that you look at the performance of the index the characteristics its performance in different markets its volatility its drawdowns and factors like that um, aside from risk and return then you've got to look at things like cost so tracking difference which is the long-term drag effectively a form of internal cost for the etf is also important when you're thinking about cost uh, and finally perhaps the least important in my mind maybe controversially tracking error is how closely the the etf tracks that, that index but actually they tend to be uh, relatively tight and over time it's the tracking difference more than i think the tracking error to worry about and sorry just to, just to be very clear what what is the difference there tracking error and tracking difference adam tracking error is the precision of an etf around its index whereas tracking difference is how much it underperforms over a period of time. The tracking difference, the underperformance, is what we generally think matters to an investor. But a high tracking error, a less precise ETF, is likely to have worse performance over time. Okay. And now cost. ETFs are obviously always held as ultra low cost ways to invest. Adam, how do the costs of investing in ETF compare to other types of funds? And are there costs which go beyond a headline fee? That's right. There are different levels of cost. On the annual charge basis, ETFs do tend to be one of the lowest cost uh, options out there. You can find ETFs in most major areas with fees under 0.2%, although there are some that are a lot higher. But don't forget the the part that trading costs play within this because if you are holding it for a short time period then you might find that the the trading cost or the bid offer spread which is the difference between the buy and the sell price has more of an effect than your total investment over time we never recommend people do invest in the short run but this is a flexibility that some people will take advantage of. Yeah and how easy is it for investors to find out information about things like bid offer spread? This information is out there you can find uh, spread quotes on um, most brokers websites you can see what the the buy and the sell price is out there or if you're talking to your stockbroker over the phone you can ask them and they'll give you an indication of what it's like for for the, the the size that you're trading. Okay, Joe, how does iShares try to reduce the trading costs associated with ETFs? So I agree completely with Adam. There are a lot of factors to consider and price, while being a very important one, um, is just one of them. I think it's really important when you're choosing any investment vehicle to do your property diligence and ensure the fund meets their goals. For investors who are investing more on the longer term, trading costs become less important and the OCF or the total cost of ownership is very important. And as ETFs have evolved and become more and more popular, the costs have come down. So recently, a couple of years ago, we introduced the the core range at iShares. So the FTSE 100 product is seven basis points. That's 7p for every £100 invested in the product on an annual basis. In terms of the trading costs, I think that for the retail or individual investor, that is something that is continuing to improve. I think that we've worked very hard you know, with our partners to try and get the processes they use behind trading an ETF better across the industry. And I think it's going in the right direction. To so make that's sure. something you actively try to manage, is it to reduce that bid offer spread on your products? 
Exactly. We have a team that will do that with our brokers. And then we also have a team that do it with our partners, the platforms, the, the brokers that um, are using. So, you know, with the Hargreaves Lansdowne of the world and the best investor of the world, um, you know, we work with their teams to make sure that, um, you know, we, we deliver the best solution for the clients. There's two parts of this. There's, there's the actual trading on the stock exchange and within the market. And then the, the experience the end customers are, are getting with the platforms. Okay. So I want to move on now to another divide, and that's the physical ETFs versus synthetic ETFs. So, Joe, do you want to just explain briefly what that difference is? I mean, ultimately, there are two different types of ETF. The first one is a physical uh, replicating ETF. And this ETF goes out and buys all or the most of the underlying securities uh, within an index. So with, when it comes to the FTSE 100, it will go and buy the 100 stocks in the proportion of the index in the FTSE 100. On the other hand, you know, some ETFs use a synthetic structure to track an index. This is when the ETF enters into a swap agreement with a counterparty, typically an investment bank, um, to deliver the index return uh, rather than buying the underlying securities. And so why, why do synthetics exist? Do they have benefits over physical? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there are some markets, particularly in the commodity space or some of the historically some of the harder to reach markets where it's been necessary to have synthetic products. Our philosophy is very much that if we can possibly do it in a physical structure, that's where we want to do it. But again, there are some markets where you can't do it that way. And so synthetic ETFs definitely have a place to play. Yeah, because this is, can be a bit of a controversial area, can't it? And Adam, I get the sense that synthetic ETFs are often perceived as riskier or, or less appealing than physical ones. Do you think that's the case? And do you use synthetic? Synthetic exposure means having an investment bank providing the derivative which is used by the ETF, which provides the exposure, which drives the fund. And so you're, you have a, the risk of added complexity. And if this investment bank were to get into problems, there could be issues there. We actually saw this back in the financial crash in 2008. A number of uh, commodities products, which were synthetically backed, struggled whenever AIG got into financial difficulties and a few products were suspended. Despite the risks, these can be useful. As Joe said, sometimes synthetic products can be cheaper. And sometimes they can track their index more precisely. But if you're an investor, only buy it if you understand and you're comfortable with those added risks. Okay. And one fairly controversial element of physical ETFs, Ben, is stock lending, isn't it? And the fact that they lend out some of the things they hold to generate revenue. I mean, what do you think of that as a, as a practice? And is it controversial? Well, I, I think it is controversial. I think it's pretty well known. I'm not overall a, a fan of, of securities lending programs. So I'll try to be balanced. And I'm sure that Joe will, will challenge me um, in anything I, I think is, is or he thinks is a, perhaps a bit unkind. So overall, the, the practice involves lending out securities that you have in your fiscal ETF to things like investment banks and hedge funds. Uh, they use it for things like shorting and, and various other activities. Um, now, the benefits of that, benefits are sort of threefold. The investor benefits, because they will often pretty much always get a, a part of that return back into the ETF they own. Uh, it is ultimately good for, for the uh, ETF provider providing that service because they will generate revenue for themselves. Uh, and thirdly, it's often considered good for the market because it does support liquidity overall. These are activities that, that ultimately do go on. They are important for, for true price discovery. So there are benefits for lots of people involved. 
uh, of course, there there are some negatives, uh, which which I sort of lean more towards. You know, from my point of view, it does add in a, a source of counterparty risk, and it brings into question, you know, what's the collateralisation policy? As uh, in, what are you actually holding? Because obviously, if you've loaned out everything in your ETF, <laughs> you're no longer holding that basket of stocks. Is is that what you mean by yeah. the collateralisation? Absolutely. So when you lend these stocks out, you're not just generally you're not just giving it to them and, and hoping that. They, they give it back. And there are also usage rules that limit how much you can have out on loan without holding something uh, in return. So collateralization policy, this is very common in synthetic ETFs. Uh, so from my point of view, by lending out these securities, you are bringing some of those factors that, that are of concern to a lot of people uh, when it comes to synthetic ETFs. I also think it makes them a bit more complex. And what I like, if you have a physically replicating FTSE 100 ETF, I, I think it's good to go to clients and say, look, it's a FTSE 100 ETF. It just holds all the constituents and that's how it works. I'm less keen when you then have to say it holds the constituents, but then it might lend it out to an investment bank. Instead, you'll hold some other collateral that will be ring fenced in a third party uh, account. And, and I think it adds a level of complexity uh, and, and potentially opacity that is not necessarily the best thing overall. It's worth highlighting. It's not just passives that do it. Active funds can do it as well. Uh, and I think even though it's controversial, what what I'd hope most of us in the room will agree, ultimately, as long as investors are aware, it's the investor's choice. So as long as the investors know what they're getting and that there's a securities lending policy in place and what it is, then it's down to, to the individual investor to decide. Joe, are there kind of rules around the kind of things you can receive back the, the types of assets that you can actually hold? Say if you have a bond ETF and you've loaned out some of those bonds and actually what you're holding are equities, could that happen? I mean, I think securities lending, if properly managed and with robust risk controls, actually can help investors and financial markets. Um, so help investors unlock additional returns from their portfolios by making short-term like loans to generate the additional income. And then the markets improve the liquidity of the overall markets, which is obviously something that everyone wants to see. We select highly creditworthy borrowers based on conservative credit standards defined by a separate and very much separate risk committee. BlackRock also provides an indemnification against the borrower's default, irrespective of the percentage of securities on loan. So I think, you know, from, from two sides, not only do we go after, you know, highly creditworthy borrowers, but we also make sure that our underlying investors are indemnified versus any losses we may experience against but that. Just on, but just on that question about if I have a bond ETF, could I actually be holding equities when I think I'm holding bonds? Yes, you could. Okay. And you recently decided to remove the limit, didn't you, on, on securities lending. Why was that? We removed the limit to ensure that clients could benefit from the additional securities lending return in funds that some of the, uh, there are some funds where there is an additional demand for the securities that we are lending out. And the 50% limit to us for a small number of funds didn't make sense. Um, and there are additional returns that investors could have by lending these securities out. Okay, so because those are particularly in demand, you can get quite high revenue from loaning those out, which exactly. you pass on to customers. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm going to move on now to another debate, and that's a smart beta versus, I guess, dumb beta, however you want to call it. And we will come back to this debate. Joe, what do we mean by smart beta briefly? Okay, so smart beta is, um, in our view, just the evolution of investing. As technology advances, as data becomes more globally available, um, we have been able to take aspects uh, that were predominantly the field of active managers and capture them in an index and therefore replicate that index in an ETF. So I'll give you an example. Value investing has been around since 1930 
And it used to involve fund managers spending hours trailing through company annual reports, looking for stocks or companies with certain characteristics, value characteristics. These reports were not easily available um, for smaller companies or for emerging market companies, um, and it was time-consuming to cover too many companies. So it was very much the domain of the active managers. Now, data providers can provide you with also any characteristic of any company around the world, of hundreds of companies around the world, and this data can be used to build indices, such as value indices or momentum indices, very simple and easy. So from my perspective... It's just the evolution of investing and the availability of data um, and technology um, that has enabled us to introduce such things as Smart Beta. Okay, but I guess simply put, is is it just a, an ETF which tracks any index which isn't a market cap weighted index? Would that be fair to say, Adam? That's how I would define it. And I think that the where this is useful is where Smart Beta starts to take the place of a traditional active manager in a portfolio. Because that's where a lot of these smart betas are, uh, ETFs are being used. They're being constructed to do something that a traditional index, a simple FTSE all share investment couldn't do. Thanks. Well, we're going to come back to that in later episodes. But that brings us to the end of our first episodes of ETFs at 16. And in the next one, we're going to talk about how you can use ETFs in your own portfolios. And I'll be asking Ben, Adam and Joe about some of the asset classes and the types of ETFs which might outperform this year. So thanks for listening. 